Okay, let's just get our nerves out of let's the way. Let's get the nerves out. Shake them out. You know, this is this is our first episode. It's going to be a little nervy. Yes, yes. It's nerve-wracking. For some weird reason, it feels like a school project that we're performing. Performing is definitely the right word for that. Like, we're standing in front <laughs> of a classroom. And we're the serious people. But we will get through it. Yes. This is going to be fun. This is going to be good. So... This is my podcast called Have You Read It? It is going to be hopefully a long list of podcasts, hopefully with Ashley on it a ton, as, as well as other people. Um, I'm excited because I am a literary lover. I love all things literature. And I hope that with this, it will help other people learn how to read not just read, but understand and analyze and have someone else that they could go to to listen about everything else that they're reading and if they want any other opinions and everything. So first, as like the first episode, I feel like it's customary or like nice to just kind of go over the objectives of the of the podcast and why I even want to have a podcast because it can kind of seem like a boring thing. I just I don't want to be on here and just like talk away, but that's just kind of what I do, I talk a lot. So this is like the perfect way for me to like get A wonderful out. outlet. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And there's no one else I'd rather be talking to than my bestie Ashley. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I love to read. I, um, we do it all the time together. And I feel like this is a really, I just wanted a way that I could release books that I'm reading right now that I feel very heavily on and that I have a lot of opinions on that other people could listen to and one like if you want to read a book but you don't know if you would like it but you're too like you don't want to just spark note it and see like oh what the what the summary of it is because it's really unfulfilling and there's really no characterization in that this is a really good way for you to listen and listen for the first couple minutes just kind of get like a feel on what the book is if you'd want to read it or not I for the first few minutes of every podcast we won't spoil anything so don't worry about that but after about like five minutes of every podcast, we will start to spoil. So <laughs> make sure that after that, we will give a little warning and then you can you can have the rest of your day and open up that book if you want to. And then for readers who are reading it currently, we will have stuff to talk about. There might be some spoilers if you haven't finished it yet, but really for the people that have finished it, this is going to be a great outlet for you to listen to our opinions and our thoughts on it because we're very into this. We've written like 15 pages of notes for this, so we have a ton of things to talk over. We're so excited. This is such a good book, and we're so excited to like be able to talk about it with you guys. So, the book. Haven't even said the name. Dun, dun, dun. dun. <laughs> it oh, wait, is... Oh, wait, wait. Let me introduce who you are first. Oh, yes, yes. What am I doing? I've said her name, but this is like my bestie, my coworker, my... My everything, my girl. <laughs> this is Ashley McManus. <laughs> Ashley McManus. She is a sophomore. Yeah, I'm actually going to my junior year of college. So, isn't that kind of crazy? But this is news to me. Yeah, I got credits from high school that put me a year ahead. So, she is a junior. <laughs> a junior in college at DePaul. DePaul University. And what are you studying? And I'm studying political science with a minor in... African and Black Diasporic Studies and Spanish. Which is amazing. She yes, is so girl. smart. <laughs> and I'm so lucky to have around this with me. So the book we are doing today is 
Brave New World by Alice Huxley. Yes, ma'am, we are. Oh, it is such a good novel. It is a dystopian, question mark, utopian, which we will get into later novel. And I'm first just going to start off with the little summary that I've created. Um, it's not going to give away any spoilers, like I said, but it's just a nice, like, preemptive starter yeah, to what the novel is about. So... It's good to get some background information on yes. the type of person you're going to be reading about. Exactly. So, follows a man named Bernard in a society where everyone is genetically mutated to be a particular individual before they are born. Bernard was born to be an Alpha Plus, a high achievement, although he doesn't hold that same opinion. He is driven to a character named Lenina, who is a dedicated follower of Soma and Ford, which is their god. Yes, the one with the cars. They go on vacation together to study the lands of the natives, where they meet John who was born to a woman from the fortship. Giving birth is, a, is a extremely taboo in the fortship, and so are genuine relationships. After this, Lenina and Bernard take John and his mother back to try to assimilate them back into the society, but unsurprisingly are met with many challenges. This is kind of like a nice preemptive to open up it. It was written in 1931, so it is a little bit of an old book. Yeah. But right in that nice, like, pure industrialization time where everything was really yeah. getting and going. A lot of historical events, which are definitely reflected in the novel, will definitely be seen through this podcast. Yeah, definitely. And he was actually nominated for the Nobel Peace, for the Nobel Prize in Literature nine times. Wow. Nine times. I'm not surprised. No. I'm really not. He has, a good, he has a way with words. No, literally. And he was a pacifist, so... He was opposed to war, military, and violence. He was half-blind in one eye, and it's called keratitis punctata. I don't know why I felt like saying that, but... <laughs> but it works. But he, we love it. <laughs> he had that. Um, he wanted to be a doctor, which I thought was very interesting, but because he was half-blind, he could not see for a very long time, and so he became a writer instead once his sight started to clear up a little bit and you could really see those themes and like those scientific like vocabulary a lot in his novel which I think is very is, is very just funny and interesting there is something I wanted to add just because yeah. the novel can be a little bit hard to read at first because we definitely have a lot of shifts in perspective so mm -hmm. the first half of the book is coming from Bernard's perspective on reality yes thank you for yeah, yeah. and then the second half once we start getting introduced to John um, really stops focusing on Bernard and focuses on John's experience in the world state. So it's just interesting to try to focus on that and understand that there is going to be a shift of perspectives. There will be smaller characters interjected within the novel. I'm not saying that Lenina is of is insignificant, but she definitely is. She is a main character, but it's really going to focus on um, John and Bernard. The contrast between the two. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And I think right now would be the perfect time for if you haven't read the book, to shut your computer, turn off your phone, open up that book and start reading because we're about to start spoiling. Yes, but, we are. <laughs> <laughs> but another part that I wanted to add was, yeah, like they have the shifts between the different characters in each chapter, which I thought was very, just really cool because yeah. I love it when you're able to see the same thing through different people's perspectives. So at the very beginning, it, switch, it switches between Bernard and Lenina and mm -hmm. then it goes from Bernard to Lenina to John. Yep. 
And, and then you start to get Mustafa Mond in there, bringing exactly. in his philosophical perspectives on the world state. Which are very interesting. Yeah. It's really, it's really cool. Okay. So. Take a break, y'all. <laughs> Take a break. <laughs> okay. What do you want to get into first? The themes? Yeah. The there themes. are a lot of interesting themes. I just want to point out that. While you're reading this novel, you might start to realize that some of the things we're discussing are extremely relevant to contemporary Mm -hmm. society and have and can be traced back in time, you know, to 100 years ago, 200 years ago, and And even just decades. And probably, like, in the future, too. Exactly. It's going to continue to matter and be relevant to society. It's something that is so timeless, which explains why it has maintained its controversy through what like 80 Since, years yeah, now yeah a like, long time it's still controversial to this day and it's probably getting more controversial as time is going on definitely so yeah like it's a very relevant book to read and to know because it's going to like evolve as we evolve with right it. exactly so um I think it might be important to start off with the structure of the world state just because that's yeah. will help to give you guys a little bit of a better understanding of the type of society that the world state's based on so this society is based on utilitarianism which was established by john stuart mill Mm -hmm. and utilitarianism is basically a type of society where they try to maximize happiness and stability and efficiency by benefiting yes by benefiting the majority of a people Mm -hmm. so whatever makes the majority of people happy or benefits the majority of people is what will go um Despite not satisfying or, you know, approving of everyone else. So, and this is why a lot of people say that this book is a satire specifically on socialism because of wanting to make everyone happy and taking out the feelings and taking out, like, the religion and taking out everything like that. And that's yeah. why there's been a lot of, like, stir over what his political beliefs were because... It's a very, like, forward-thinking book because it's totally anti-capitalism. It's a total industrialized society. Their deity is Ford, who, like, was the head of consumer culture and starting the, the uh, starting the assembly line and the making of all of that. Mass production, Literally. Yeah. And he, like, was the starter of everything like that. But he, which is so symbolic that Huxley chose him to be the the head the god yeah. and so instead of saying oh my like oh my god they would say oh my ford, ford. like mm-hmm. oh ford the irony the irony <laughs> we love literally. it but it's to show like how technology really just even though technology then was not what it is now yeah it shows that like even then technology was taking a forefront turn that he saw in that moment and now if he would look at today, he'd be like, oh, I was so right. because He was. When you get into the genetic engineering and the eugenics. Mm-hmm. Oh, let's go on. into that. Yeah. Because that's super interesting. So they genetic mutate everything. Like, you you don't have a relationship with a family. You don't have a mother. You don't have a father. And you instead are, it's called, what is it called? Epi- Decanting. But what's the name for the, um, like, the 96 Vulcan... Bolfanoski process. Yes. <laughs> it's <laughs> so hard to say. Yeah, but it's when they make 96 identical children. From one Question egg. mark, because they aren't really even children. Right. But they're sprouted to all have the same exact functions in life. They're 
given less oxygen, they're given less whatever to like, and they're shown things from a young age to resent, to like, to care to, and to not care to, so that when they get older, they have those um, ideas and ideological, um, like preferences already in their head that they want to um, sustain to yeah. and not to direct away from. And that's just one way in how they control people from birth is like, this is how you're going to be, and we planted it, and we use it. But it's so scientific, but everything else that they have, they keep everyone else away from the science. Right, exactly. And it's not even just, like, genetic engineering that they use as a means of controlling and predestining someone to a certain um, case within society. It's also through psychological means Mm -hmm. with the hypnopedic practices that they use, which is basically, like, repetition of certain phrases while these 96 beings are asleep or you know one being because as you go up the case um they start to not be able to produce as many children or beings from one egg so like alphas and betas you only get one being Mm -hmm. per egg whereas an epsilon who like you said is deprived of oxygen may be exposed to more hard metals and chemicals like that and they look weird too yeah, exactly. So there's hints of racism in there the is, book, there is, which we'll get yeah. into. But yeah. yeah, so they definitely also use some psychological practices um, to kind of reinforce their structure in society, which is based on the motto of community, identity, and stability. So, for example, they'll constantly repeat the phrase, ending is better than mending, which feeds mm-hmm. into the mass consumerism and the capitalism, which Huxley is ultimately critiquing within it's like his novel. It's like, even though the society doesn't have a religion, it has, it has like, an input belief system. Right, it's like that, a cult. That's, like, their Bible scriptures. Yeah. Like, you know when, like, they're like, oh, Jeremiah this, or, like, this, you know what I'm talking yeah, about, yeah. like, the different parts of a Bible that you could pick from? It's like, that's what they say to soothe themselves. Yeah, exactly. When they're feeling something. Or take is, a soma yeah. when you're upset. And so it's so ironic because... Oh, Mond at the end says that he hasn't put religion in the society for a reason. He hasn't put science in the society for a reason. He hasn't put relationships or passion in society for a reason. But it has all of that. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't have it. He's just controlled how it is shown. Exactly. And religion is shown through forward, and science is shown through overstimulation. Passion is shown through bubbling up over your feelings. And we, we're only able to see three very different characters feelings through the story but i feel like it's a very it's a probably very accurate feeling of everyone else in the society because i forgot what his name is but he's the um linda's he was a director or he was the um yeah i think he was the director but then he ended up being john's father yes and they so basically a big part of the book is Obviously, because you guys have read it now, but if you, you go on vacations a lot, you go on expeditions a lot, and you, which I think is also very weird because it's a society that's supposed to be very shielded and guarded, but they're encouraged to go visit other parts of the world so that they believe that they have the upper hand and mm. not other parts do. Yeah. But I think they're only probably shown very isolated and like parts that they make look bad because they sort of have still have control over it like the part that they called savages which is really offensive they guarded them they weren't allowed to leave their whole lives like it's they did it on purpose to try to make a message to them like look where you are though 
Right. Look where you are. These right. people are free, but look where you are. Exactly. And so, yeah, like, what was I getting into that? Um. Well, it also, in a way, just to add, shows what life would be like if, if the world state did not have the leaders that they had, if they didn't have the type of social and political structures that the 10 controllers had implemented. So it makes, by showing them, you know, these indigenous people in their natural habitat by portraying them as as dirty and animalistic mm-hmm. and Literally. just living off of the ground and you know everything's desolate and dead because it's in the desert they're kind of creating this this atmosphere of well why would you want to be like this anyways like look what society is like when you have happiness when everything's controlled for you when you mm-hmm. have drugs and you know, you're just working and then you get to go home and take your soma and live a happy life when you don't have to just walk around every day mindlessly with these family structures that is a central theme in the novel yeah. that they critique. And so, like you said, it's kind of like, look, this is what you could be like, but we're offering you this reality. This. Yeah. And so. it's total, like, over-consumerism, which is such a thing that we're so really, really concerned me when I read this novel because I've read many novels that have been trying to like mirror our life today but I would have to say that this is definitely the most accurate um like depiction of a warning of today's society obviously like we aren't shielded from like going to other places actually that's a little questionable but we are definitely like over we're given like all these things for us to be happy 24 7 that we're so used to getting everything that we just instant gratification and in, literally instant gratification we need that yeah exactly and so it's so i related to bernard particularly so much because what was the part where okay so when he brought john back and before he had brought john back before he'd even gone to um was it new mexico mm-hmm. that's right yeah he was feeling very, like, the thing about Alpha Pluses that I thought was so cool, but also, like, really weird, was that they program them to be more um, mentally independent, to yeah. think differently. And then they make the people who are lower on the caste system Mindless to be creatures. yeah to be more loyal. And you see that difference between um, Lenina and Bernard drastically because Lennon is what only two cats she's a gamma he's an alpha plus so is right. he three things above her two things above her but well they couldn't be any farther apart with like how they she loves the fortune and he hates it and it's also important to remember that there was the running joke in the novel that Bernard had had too much alcohol put into to, his test tube so yeah. there's always that thing of like this is what happens when the decanting process doesn't go as follows. Or this is what happens, you know, we have this interjection of this character who is not completely removed from society, but is in a way removed from society because he perceives reality differently than, you know, how people are conditioned to perceive Mm -hmm. it. And so I think that that was intentional on Huxley's part, like you were saying. And I love how he went back and forth between the two because it was so... Like, the juxtaposition between the two was right. so much more obvious that way that it was so easy to pick up on how they saw each other differently. Like, the moment... So, another trait that's very, like, 
a big part of the novel is like sex positivity and they don't want you to have like long-term lasting relationships with people they just want you to like have sex and then move on right and that's the way to keep and then birth control is worn as an accessory on your hip which is yeah, so like funny. what <laughs> like let me yeah <laughs> but you have that and then you have someone like John that you meet and he's like so so far like um like I don't even know like he's so like he's from another time like he he reads classic Shakespeare and he is so so far removed that like he sees all of that he comes into this world and he's like oh okay right okay like this this is where I am now like okay so then you have like that budding relationship between Lenina and John and it seems he builds it up to seem like it's going to end like them together he builds it up to make it seem like do we see a mirroring of Romeo and Juliet we do see a mirroring of Romeo and Juliet which is perfect because it's the tragic ending that Huxley wanted us to see Mm -hmm. but in modern day Mm -hmm. and when you look at other dystopian novels because personally I, I would take this to be more of a dystopian novel yeah like 1984 with um, Winston and Juliet, it's also a tragic ending. Very much mirrors Romeo and Juliet to show mm-hmm. you that can love really succeed in the face of government control? Yep. Can it? Nope. Ultimately, no. if they can get inside of you, if they can control you, then really what do you have left? So. But the like the crazy thing about this situation is that it's, john that gets away but it's also john that ruins it all yep yeah like he gets away but then i mean they come to him but but it's so i wanted to point out one other thing about bernard because to me his character is really interesting because while he is really progressive he still definitely has those conditioned aspects about him when you look in comparison to john who is very staunchly like separated from Mm -hmm. the world state who has not been conditioned other than the little bits and pieces of information that linda had shared to him but bernard you'll even see in instances he'll be like well john you're literally crazy like just take a soma like so we even see bernard kind of spewing out some of that rhetoric from the world state so even though he is progressive in the terms of the individuals who are decanted and conditioned within the world state he still is definitely not as progressive as i think a lot of us want him to be think that would be to us like like actually you're being so like you're you're being so upset. Go do this. Right. What what would that be for our society? Because there definitely is. Yeah, I I honestly could say like I know for a lot of people they say go take a hit. Yeah. Go, go take, take a, a hit. hit of your dad pen. Go take you know go use your, I don't know what else but go watch TV. Go chill out. Go for yeah, a walk. For go kids, for a run. For kids, they'll have a go on your tablet. They'll have like tablet time. Yeah. Go. So it's go, just, go on your tablet. It's the whole idea of we recognize how powerful emotions are. We recognize that that's what gives humans control over their own selves and mm-hmm. over their own destiny. But at the same time, they're too much for some people. So it's like, okay, well, I realize the power of these emotions. I realize what they can let someone do, what they, what they allow someone to do. But I'm going to limit that for them. Because it scares you. Right. It's scary. It's scary. But what even are negative emotions other yeah. than 
the label and the pressure we put on them to, to point be them as negative. Is literally. jealousy and anger and frustration really negative, or are they just allowing us to experience what it means to be human? But in the world state, back to their motto with community identity and stability, mm-hmm. anything that threatens stability has to be removed. So, like, sex, for example, has to be normalized because that is seen as this intimate, you know, moment where you bond with someone and energetically. And take the emotions out yes. of it. Because what does sex breed? Passion, Passion lust, lust, love. Literally. You can't have that. But in a lot of dystopian novels, you will see the idea of, of sex being used as a medium through which the world state will control people. You yeah. see that in 1984 too, which I'm assuming you'll talk about on this podcast. Probably. But yeah, so that's just really interesting is the interplay of emotions within this novel, but also the way that's, that societies have to suppress those. So they people are forced to always need to be happy. Like you'll see John or Bernard say, you know, I want to feel passion. I just want to feel something strongly. And Lennon is like, what? Like she doesn't I she doesn't I know what that yeah, is. She doesn't exactly. know what that is. And that's so tried and true to today's society that we've become so overstimulated and that's why they also have the feelies because they literally have like a movie theater that you go to that they they touch you, they have you smell so aromatherapy, things, yeah. Literally everything like that. So you f- you feel as much as you can, so then later you feel nothing. Yep. And then you get as much as you can on Soma, and then you feel nothing. Like, it's the the buildup, like the orgasmic feeling of it. Yeah. And then the release. But they that play makes off you, of that. Yeah, are, exactly. And it's like that addiction feel to it. And so, like, yeah, that's like, that's crazy to think about. That's a really good thing to bring up. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I know. It's, and Huxley does a really good job with that. Because you see today, too. With our society, like, we are so overstimulized with everything. If we want to go online to look up one thing, we can't. If we want to go see a TikTok, we can't. If we want to go post something and get 200 likes on it, we can't. If we want to go get people to compliment us, if we want to talk to whoever and get compliments for them, we can. If we want to buy something, we'll be here the next day. Like, we are so... If we want to go to a restaurant, it's open 24 hours down the street. If you want to have someone come to your house and bring food to you, you can't. Like, it's everything's at our yeah. fingertips that it's become so okay, but, like, what do I actually want? Well, and the thing is, is, like, even if you look at it, like, on, an, like, a very minuscule level, even when you're in the grocery store, it's, like, you have these, like, cereal boxes with, like, boom, pow, bright colors. Yeah. Like, buy me, sale for this, sale for that. Like, the TV, you, you'll you be on your phone, you'll have the TV on in the background. You know, maybe you'll have the radio playing. Or even while you're cooking or eating, you're watching TV. You're listening to a podcast, like, right now. Mm-hmm. While you're in the car, you're listening to music. Then you might put the radio you're on. You're constantly overstimulating so, yeah, yourself. And it's a way to control people because if you're constantly providing people with this information it's teaching them how to think it's teaching them what to pay attention to what to not pay attention to subconsciously it's like you know if we look at it from a political standpoint it could be believe in these things don't no believe in these things vote for this person you know be afraid of people like this and so in a way it's subconsciously conditioning us to believe and think in a certain way to the point where we just blindly place trust in the government. We blindly trace, pl- 
misplaced trust in what we're hearing or listening to or seeing. We start to lose those critical development skills and analytical skills that have carried our ancestors to the point where we are today in society. And so that is a means of control that's scary because it's not like they're dropping bombs from the sky and you can Mm -hmm. obviously see that they're impeding on your life. But when it's through a medium or a format like technology, which we have come to accept, to depend upon, have integrated personally into our own society, you start to lose that aspect of awareness. And so that's what what you you should be thankful for. Yeah, and you see Huxley predicting that. Because he's like, you are, it's not that you're going to be deprived of things in the future, because you're going to have so much stuff anyways. That's the issue. You're going to have too many things that you're not going to know what to do. So I think that's really where our own society, like you said, is reflected in the novel. It's that constant consumerism that was bred by the capitalistic society we live in. Yeah. So. And it's, it's so annoying because we have it's like someone literally like ranting to you in 200 pages telling you this is what it's going to be this is how it's going to be obviously it's exaggerated to an extent to make people want to read it and not freak out but when you actually delve into it you realize that it's really just your your surroundings around you and now that we're 80 years after this book was published we're sitting around here being like he was right. This is yeah. this is our society now. Like we are always bred to like always want more and always want more and more and more and more until it ending is better than mending. Yeah. Ending is better than mending. And me and Jacqueline were talking about this earlier. A lot of times authors will write dystopian novels as a means of a call to action to yeah. bring our attention to something that we might not have previously been exposed to intentionally or unintentionally, right? Yeah. Because especially, you know, as society has progressed, right, there has been a lot of limitations on the freedom of press. Mm -hmm. So it's bringing attention to an issue that journalists might not be able to publish, you know, based on the policies that their publishing corporation has. I have a question. Yeah. Do you like Mustafa Mond? Do you like him? I have a respect for him. Okay. Because if you saw in the novel, he was just like John. Exactly. He was. And he had the choice of being sent away to live in exile or to become a controller that kind of continued this cycle of... Let's talk about that, too. Yeah. It's the people that have the most independent mindsets that are able to be the ones to become the next controller and that's how they keep them because they understand that perspective yeah but that's how they're able to keep the people on top still in control because even the people that are most independently minded what's something that's probably going to make them want to stay power right and so even though they're the most independently minded and free think in the three thinker individuals probably in the society there's somehow, and by there, I mean, like, whoever is above Mustafa, able, who pulled him in, and now he's part of it, too. Now he's just as messed up as the rest of them, because he's controlling all of them now, and probably someone, they never allude to who's controlling him, but I'm assuming someone had to have controlled him for him to get there. Right. I don't think he just took someone's place. And there's ten others of him. Literally. 
there's 10 world controllers, so, or nine others of him, but, yeah, I don't know, I think I have a respect for him, because, I think it's easy, no, you can go, oh, sorry, he seems more like a, um, Huxley doesn't, um, pose him as, like, a antagonist, no, because I, I don't, they make, he makes him humane. I don't think, yeah, and I don't think, well, what I was going to say is, Mustafa Man's characterization, I think a lot of us can relate to, because it's the, it's the losing yourself and becoming someone else, or losing yourself and becoming someone you don't recognize. Yeah. So, Mustafa Man, he did possess individuality, right? He talked about how he was interested in sciences and he was really pushing the bounds of the field he was in in search of the truth. And now he's just like everyone yeah, else. Yeah, exactly. And he, in a way, right, he still, he has access to these higher levels of, of knowledge, right? Because he possesses William Shakespeare's old books. Like, those haven't been destroyed. He possesses the Bible, right? Which the average person, obviously, you know is not aware of or even knows exists at this point because, you know, history has been erased. Mm -hmm. But it's, he was an individual, right? He was, he was in the search of something, right? He was looking for purpose and truth. Yeah. Something happened and he lost himself. Can all of us not relate to that in some way? Yeah. Right? Where this individual, something traumatic happens to us, we lose ourselves, right? But he eventually will never find himself again, right? Because he's been conditioned. Yeah. But he I lost think, himself to capitalism. Right. And he lost himself to the want of power Which and greed. Is another theme that's very, very important to Huxley. Yeah. Is how civilization destroys people. Mm-hmm. Like with John, right? In the end, John attempted to defeat civilization, yeah. but he even admits it himself. I was poisoned by it, and mm-hmm. now he's dead. Yeah. And. Yeah. So it's it's the idea of what are we sacrificing to be happy in society? Do you think that he would have rather stay at the reservation that he was in? Or do you think that he needed to come to to the society, to the Fordship, to realize that what he... Because I honestly feel like this had to have happened for him to have that click in himself. Because... He was not happy on the on the reservation. He was discriminated against for his whole life because of the fact that his mother was sexually promiscuous. Yeah, and he was yeah racially which, different. Yeah. yeah. So Linda, which was his, which was his mother, she came to. She came to the reservation. And she ended up getting stuck there. She was lost, and they thought that she died. So they came back without her. They thought she died. I don't think that's true. I think the director of Hatchery knew that she was alive, but knew she was pregnant and left her so he could keep his job. And that's what I think happened. But he... A little hypothesis. <laughs> she was she was left there, and she had to make her own living, living there with him in a society that is so much different because they're taught to keep to keep everything clean. They're not given any type of um, nature. There's no tree. There's, like, no trees. There's well, they're, no... they're conditioned to hate it. Yeah. Because it so, made them lazy. Lazy. 
So they don't... And how does consumerism and, and, you know, mass production work if you're lazy and you don't want to work? Exactly. So she's put in this, like, preserve, like, this nature preserve when in the fortship there is no nature. And so she becomes dirty because they don't have, like, they're not industrialized. And then she has her... Potassium supplements. Yeah. She has her son, who's John. And then she's... Um, she's conditioned to, like, have relationships with people, not have, int- not to have long-lasting relationships, but to have hookups with people and to have sex. Right. And she's in a place that could not be any more different. I think one of the smartest parts about this book is that he did put, he chose John to be in, like, a tribe like this because it's so characterized today that when you see, you call someone like a close group of people your tribe your people that you have and you don't let those people go and that's a very close-knit relationship of people and that couldn't be any separate from where she was from she was from a society where you don't keep close relationships you do it you leave you go on like yeah, yeah you don't create really close friends like you're kind of friends for whatever advantages there are with it but you don't keep a close love for each other and that cannot be any more different than the pure and full relationships that are held within those tribes. Right. So for her to come in, and it's not her fault, because she was conditioned at birth to think that way, but it was just so interesting to see how really far away her mind was and how how much it got into her, that this is how this is how you are, this is how you should be. And it's made me wonder about myself and about our society as Americans is this like kind of about us and about our like want to always go out and do things and go see other people's worlds and then kind of like disrespect their cultures and then like right come back and be like oh well they're dirty and they're this and they're that like without even like really respecting it and taking the time to respect it quick little thing the quote-unquote savage reservation is actually based on the Zuni people that is a real Native American community in the southwestern hemisphere of the United States. So hmm. if you guys are interested in looking up, you know, the history of that, because Huxley did spend a significant time studying their culture um, to be able to portray them in a way in the novel that we'll get to later with Savage versus Civilized and what that really means. But... I wanted to get back to your question really quickly because I think that was a good question where you said, you know, like, was was it necessary for him to come to this, you know, like, would he fit better in with the... Natives. Yeah, the, would he the Zuni or, you know, in the world state. And this gets into the whole idea of sh- how Shakespeare's interwoven. But John has this very romanticized idea of when- what the civilized world state looks like. And he's so excited when Bernard invites him to come back, which, by the way, Bernard is only inviting him to come back because he realizes that, you know, him, Bernard, is on the stake to being sent to exile because of his, you know, outlandish feelings. But he realizes that John is the son of the director. He puts two and two together, and he believes that if he brings John back with him, he could use that as leverage so he's not sent to exile. But... I think it's really interesting because John is has this idea that 
you know, it's diverse, you know, everyone is doing their own thing, they're living in harmony, everything's beautiful and peaceful. But to John, that beauty also comes with conflict, pain, loss, you know, devotion. And when he gets to the world state, he realizes that is not at all the world that he had imagined, the reality that he had created in his head. So I think that's something else that we should probably touch on is the whole idea of Shakespeare's um, Oh Brave New World, how beauteous the creatures are. Mm -hmm. But I think it was important for him to go to the world state because it shows you that there really is no perfect way to live. Like, all throughout history, humans have had this idea of a utopia. Doesn't matter. It could be in the Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. It could be now. It could be, you know, back in the medieval ages. It was always this idea of, like, we could just have this perfect society where everything is in harmony, but you have to give things to get that. You have to sacrifice something. And so I think that you know, it was important for John to go and experience that reality because he realized what he, what we were losing by, you know, trying to live in a peaceful and stable society. And so I think that's really important because I think that develops into who he will become throughout the novel. And it's also like the, it plays upon the adventure in him that he gets from reading the books that he is given from Pope. Like he he reads books by Shakespeare and Shakespeare's themes are always about reaching out and into tragedy into things that end up being tragic but start as adventures and it could be adventures within different communities that you probably that you don't know about right like Capulet and Montague like Romeo and Juliet both want to find each other but a part of them is doing it for love but probably another part of them is doing it because they're young and they're dumb Mm -hmm. and they want to figure out and they want the curiosity yeah and they want the tea about what the other parts (laughs) of the community are about and so even though these aren't geographically next to each other it's still that other part of the community that he has only ever known about too because linda has told him so linda's from the other part so he's seen like a sample of it and what it caused her to be now and he also sees where he's grown up which is on the reservation and so he wants to know do i like, is it... Where do I fit in? Yeah, where is it? Because he didn't fit in with the natives, with the Zunis. He didn't fit in with them. They didn't appreciate him. And then he gets to he gets to the Ford ship, and they just see him as an animal. Yep. And they call him savage all the time. And they treat him like he's a pet, and like he's a trophy, or like he's a museum exhibit. And they... Him and his mom. And... But they put more pressure towards him because he's the younger one, and he's the one that is more, um, he's more, like, sought after because he was born from an embryo that was, give, he's this anomaly, yeah, he was born, like, he wasn't just, he wasn't just made, like, he was made in the traditional way, naturally, and so he's, like, this wonder to everyone because most of the people there haven't seen that ever, right, and so he's not, he's never treated like a human, ever. He's never treated normally. He's never treated equally. And you see at the end, like, what that can do to someone if you continuously treat someone like they're not equal or they aren't valued or they aren't, like, as open and as wanted as anyone else. And you see how it breaks someone. It breaks someone. Right. It, and- like, it 
messes with someone and it's really sad to see because he was such a good character he was so open-minded and so like I guess you could say naive but I just think it was he just had such an open heart ready for anyone to have his mother never really loved him she wanted she was still stuck on her old morals with wanting just to get with guys she didn't want to accept that she was with that she had had a child she didn't want to accept that that was it there were moments where she did show affection to him but it was never to the extent that a real mother would and a good mother would and then the moment she gets back to the society she goes up on soma until she passes away so she once she gets back to that spot she completely abandons him and so he loses his only tie to that place that he ever had and now he's not at his old place where he was never appreciated either so he's in this sense by himself and the only person he has is bernard and lenina and he could tell right away that bernard just wasn't really with him to be he's friends obsessed with, with lenina yeah and then he becomes obsessed with lenina because he turns to his novels and he sees how in the novels how romeo is isolated and how romeo turns to juliet and juliet is his escape is his hope for the future and hope for love and hope for lust and hope for everything that he could ever want so he wants that so badly right. he wants something just to hope for and the idea that he needs to prove himself to her, her yeah that he is worthy of having her like you see and in he, shakespeare's novels he also has a big want to prove himself to yeah. someone because he's never been able to i remember in the first couple chapters when they go to the um reserve they there's like this um ritual that goes off where one of the kids is like going around the circle and they're beating him and they're saying how many times he can get hit before he says that he's done and he comes out and this is the first time you meet him is when he comes out and he says i could have done that like 10 more times than he could have and so he just want but he wasn't allowed to go out because they didn't consider him a true native yeah and so he's just always wanted to prove himself to someone to show that he is this great and masculine man that he is this that he's worthy of them yeah and he's never been he never was able to do that yeah and so playing okay. off of that just as you said you know i love i love john's character like john is humanity like that is what he is set to represent in this novel from huxley's perspective is that piece of humanity that the world state has lost in its pursuit of utilitarianism. Mm -hmm. And so, at least for me, when I was interpreting it, right, Shakespeare is emotions, right? He is the representation, the manifestation of these emotions. He is the manifestation of the ability to feel, to perceive, to desire, to want, to lose, right? He is the human experience because Shakespeare is very much like just dirty and gritty in what he is giving right humanity so right he doesn't hold back he Mm -hmm. expresses it authentically and fully in how it occurs right and so it's not just the happiness which you get in the world state but it's the loss it's the sadness the frustration right he's passion right and so that's the human experience it's that all-encompassing and that's why John turned towards Shakespeare because Shakespeare is humanity. He is what society has lacked. And so I think that Huxley intentionally 
includes Shakespeare within this novel as a means of inserting and inserting humanity right into society but showing the conflict that humanity has with civilization because you will always lose a part of your freedom of your will of your individuality when you become a member of the whole and is there a way to work around that and what do we give up? How do we decide when we give that up? Do we even decide yeah. that we give that up? And yeah. so, I don't know, it's just really important to to consider, like, that literary device there because, right, Huxley could have chosen any other author, but it's Shakespeare because he's world-renowned for what he was able to convey. Mm-hmm. And so, it's just having that comparison and that contrast in realizing, you know, how much of our own society in our own reality and will is at stake when we blindly follow something like a world controller yeah so i think that's important to consider that is definitely really important to consider um as kind of like a last thing to go over do you think that out of all of the so the techniques used by brave new world are drastically different from 1984 with the fact that one is basically just mental and the other one is very physically endearing enduring and intensive and these ones more like deprivation yeah overstimulation abrasive right definitely abrasive and then the other one is more like over consumerism so which one do you think is What's the, like, the word to say this? Like, um, like a better, like, a better way to, like, handle a society like this? Do you think it's by scaring people to believe in what you want them to believe? Or do you think it's by giving them whatever they think they want They continue to be happy? Well, without diving too much into 1984, I don't think... Because I think Brave New World is definitely yeah. probably the more I do too because to do it. it plays subtly on human consciousness. Mm-hmm. So it makes these small little tweaks here and there that you don't always notice is happening. So you have nothing to grasp at to say, well, this is how they're controlling me. Yeah. And then prevent it from happening. Yeah. Because it's just happening. It's just your reality. And the way that they... Um... The way that Orwell was able to write 1984 was very, like, desolate and somber. There was never, like, any really happy moments the whole book. Even when him and Julia, like, right. like were together, it wasn't happy. Like, it, there was never any happy moments whatsoever. But there are, like, sort of happy moments in the book. Like, there aren't, there aren't moments where, like, it's jubilous, I would say. But there are definitely moments where it's, you're able to look back and say say to yourself, like, I could see how someone could live this way because they're preconditioned to believe that it's okay. Well, yeah. But in 1984, I don't see how anyone could live that way. Well, and also, 1984 is the classic scenario we're always Mm -hmm. given. I mean, it's literally just like, right, what happened in Nazi Germany and Russia. So it's like we would know to look out for that, Mm -hmm. right? That's a reality that... you wouldn't know to look out for for this. So it's way more realistic. Because it's it's technological, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, and technology is scary, but all of us accept it in some form or another, whether it's with our electronic fans, light bulbs, TVs, cars, Alexas, phones, 
like we're recording this song literally anything exactly so it's not like that's a reality we can't escape i mean we can escape you know these the militaristic type of dystopian novels that we see like 1984 i mean because that's something we know to look out for yeah because that's literally right in our face. We're physically seeing bombs come down. We're watching history be demolished and statues You're being torn down. You're seeing the cameras looking at you right. in the house and watching you when you move. Exactly. But are you seeing, like... The eugenics? The genetic no. engineering? Are we there when the scientists are tweaking genes to create this perfect How are you going to end up being? Like, they do all exactly. in the beginning, so you end up being that way right when you're born. Right. We don't have access to that information, so I definitely think... Not only is Brave New World more relevant to our society, not only does it depict a future that that is kind of similar to our own, but it's scarier. Yeah. Because how can you prevent something you don't even know is happening? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And what's in the woodworks right now? Yeah. So, that's just something to consider. Yeah. I feel like that's a good closing note, too. Yeah. Yeah. So... I feel like we could probably do like five more episodes. Yes, this. There we have so, so much more things to talk about. But that was our first episode of Have You Read It Yet? And if you stayed the whole time, thank you, thank you. <laughs> you get brownie <laughs> points, yeah. You get brownie. <laughs> and hopefully, you picked up on at least a couple things from that that you hadn't already picked up on, and that you could take away from this and learn. And next time, we'll. We let we we want to pick some various books from different areas of studies. All genres, yeah, all not genres. Not as serious, some no. light and goofy, some life and goofy, romantic, some, yeah, some nice and like comedic timing stuff, and just like everything, because that's what's so beautiful about literature is that you could pull from many different spots of life. And even though this episode to start is a pretty dark episode, it's very enlightening to see. To, so we know for the future. Gives like us it's, hope. Yeah, it gives us hope in what we can change. So, with that note, thank you for listening. Yes, thank you for joining us. And come listen next time. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know exactly what date, but we'll figure out a date. And, yeah. Thank you. Much love from the Scorpio and Virgo. (laughs)